I was listening to the radio the other day and uh, heard something I thought was quite interesting. It was Radio 4 as it happens, which, uh, yeah, come on Radio 4. If you're under 25, it's the radio station without music on it, okay? It's basically just talking. I know it sounds improbable, but it is there, um, and you will find it one day. Um, yeah? It's the progression, isn't it, you go through. You go like Radio 1, and then after a while you go to Radio 2, because, oh, the music's a bit better, isn't it? It's less banging, and the DJs don't sound like they're your children. And then you kind of, kind of, you, then you hit kind of Radio 4 time, and then you can just sit back and enjoy the next 50 years. I certainly am. Anyway, what I was listening to on the Radio 4 was a little short piece with angry scientists. And I quite, it was an interesting little piece. Basically, a top scientist had been awarded a £1 million award by a charitable foundation, which is not particularly news in itself. The award was a £1 million award uh, for promoting spirituality. And it had been given to a scientist called Lord Rees, your mate as it happens, who's the Astronomer Royal and uh, was president of the Royal Society, so a top draw uh, scientist. He's an atheist himself, but he received this award and received a lot of criticism from other scientists. And so they had a little piece on Radio 4 with some other top scientists criticising this top scientist for accepting the award. They were all kind of glossing over the fact that it's a million pounds. Just, just take the award and enjoy it. But their argument was that this, he shouldn't have taken the award because what he was doing is somehow endorsing some form of spirituality and religion, which they, these particular scientists, viewed as unacceptable. And their basic point was this. One of them said this, and I'll quote, he said, you can't do this because it promotes faith over evidence. The point that these guys were making is, having taken the award, you've somehow endorsed a form of spirituality that promotes faith over evidence. In other words, if you have any kind of uh, spiritual belief of any sort, religious or otherwise, then what you're doing is basically believing despite the evidence. Or perhaps even more severely, what you're doing is you're believing uh, and deliberately ignoring the evidence against it. And that was their position. That was why they attacked uh, Lord Rees over it. Now, I thought this was a fascinating little article, partly because my background is in science and I love all the science stuff. Uh, anyway, I find it fascinating. But also because I know that actually the claim they were making, whilst it may be true for some spiritualities, is not in the slightest bit true for genuine Christianity. Because actually, genuine Christianity is the opposite of that position that promotes faith over evidence that believes despite the evidence. Genuine Christianity self-consciously claims to be based on historical events, real historical events, events that Christians believe really happened. It's not just a philosophy or a set of morals or ideals, or maybe even we've taken some myths over time and they've given us a worldview that we shape. Because Christianity deliberately styles itself as being based on the real actual historical life and death and as we're going to see alleged resurrection of Jesus from the dead because these are things that either happened or did not happen at a certain point in time you can investigate you can challenge you can dig a little bit deeper you can research it you can scrutinize it and you can see what does the evidence say does it, is it convincing or not Christianity, real Christianity, never says, oh, you've just got to believe. It never just says, oh, find it in your heart to believe. 
It always says examine, investigate, challenge, dig in. And so with this in mind, I'm going to look at one simple question this morning, which is this. This is my question. Easter. Really? It's a blank screen at the moment. I don't know why. Um, Hopefully in a minute the Bible stuff will come up for you as well. We're just asking the question, Easter. Really? Did it it really happen? Is Is it really true? Obviously what I'm not asking you about is, is the Easter bunny real? I'm not saying, is there a little fluffy bunny who bounds around with a wicker basket laying brightly coloured chocolate eggs everywhere? Although, I mean, to be honest, if there was an Easter bunny, he's not going to be laying chocolate eggs, is he? He's going to be laying chocolate raisins. Think it through, (laughs) think it through, yeah? And also, we've got to face the fact that even if he was laying chocolate eggs, there's something bitterly disappointing about a chocolate egg on Easter, which is probably why so many of you people have not eaten them this morning. If you're like me, when you were a kid, you'd, you'd get one, and you'd be this you'd quite sizable chocolate egg, and you'd think, here we go, and the p- packet would have Smarties on it or whatever, and you'd think, I'm going to open this egg, and it's just going to pour out these sweets and chocolates are going to sort of gush out of it. And the reality, of course, is you, you, know, you, you, t- you break it open, you take your first bite out of it, it's hollow, you look carefully, just right down at the bottom, you can see a little kind of cellophane packet with three Smarties in there, and you think, oh, brilliant, thanks for that, Easter's come again. Um, if that's your experience later on this afternoon, don't say I didn't warn you, but uh, there you go. That's not what we're looking at this morning. What we're looking at is the real historical events behind Easter. Forget the bunny, forget chocolate, forget chocolate raisins, forget chocolate eggs. We're asking the life and death and alleged resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Really? Can a serious, intelligent person today genuinely believe it? That's the question we're asking. And we're going to do it by looking at an old document called Luke's Gospel, which is found in the Bible. It's one of the four accounts of the life and death of Jesus and some of the events alleged to happen after the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to dig into it and see what it helps us with in this question of, really? Did that really happen? We need to understand, uh, before we get into what Luke's Gospel actually says, that there is a kind of a Dan Brown-type theory that circulates around, that these accounts we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, about the life and death of Jesus are, are sort of, they're blatant fakes. You know, they're cobbled together centuries later by bishops and popes sitting around in a big palace somewhere, and they did it to kind of prop up their own power base in the church. The kind of the generous view says that, oh, these are things that hundreds of years later, a myth, a legend had evolved around the kind of charismatic person of Jesus, and it was written down, and it got changed and and modified, and eventually we get to the stories we have today. The the kind of the the less favourable view would literally be the the kind of the bishops and all their gold jewellery sat down and cooked it up because it would give more support to them amongst the people. What I want us to make sure we understand, first of all, is this is not the case. Luke's Gospel, the document that we're going to be looking at today for just a few minutes, was written round about AD 60. Okay? It was written around about AD 60. If you take historians' best kind of estimate for when Jesus was crucified, which was about AD 33, that means this document was written somewhere like 20, 26, 27, 28 years after the event, which in one sense you think, well, that's quite a long way past it. But it's certainly not hundreds and hundreds of years. It's certainly not time for myths and legends to grow up and spread. I mean, think about it. That's like thinking back to 1983. And if you listen to Radio 4, you can think back to 1983. It wasn't that long ago, really, was it? The Falklands War had just finished. We were all basking in the glory of that. 
Michael Jackson unleashed his thriller video on the world. Return of the Jedi hit the cinema screens. Most culturally significant, the Chicken McNugget was launched on an unsuspecting world. So suddenly it doesn't seem that long ago. Think back to 1983. Think back to your hairstyles or some of the clothes you were wearing with bitter, bitter regret. <laughs> Although the irony is you'd probably be quite fashionable now if you observed what the younger people are wearing. They haven't learned from our past mistakes. So actually, he's writing a document. It's the equivalent of things happened in 1983 and you're writing it down now. It's not time for a huge legend to grow up around it, is it? It's not time for... It's been passed down over generations and everyone's added a little bit in like a game of Chinese whispers. That's not the case. It was written relatively recent to the events. Luke also was not a crazy guy. Luke was a doctor. He was a Greek doctor based in the city of Antioch, which is in the southern part of what is now Turkey. And he spent a large amount of time travelling widely, investigating and observing early Christianity. What we actually have in Luke's Gospel is a carefully researched document based largely on eyewitness testimony of what happened. Scholars poring over it since have discovered a wealth of contemporary and historical evidence to suggest that it really was written when it claimed to be written. There are all sorts of things we find in there, small details that someone making something up years later would never have known to put in. But we find all sorts of verifications in, in the names of places, the customs of places, the routes people travelled, titles of officials. This document was circulated widely in the lifetime of many of the participants of the events. Who was alive here and reasonably old enough to remember in 1983? It's not that embarrassing. Come on, I'm not, I'm not asking you for 1951. No. A, a fair few of us, okay? It's like a document circulating now in which some of you guys are named and involved. Okay? There's a whole lot of people still alive who can say, hang on, I was there. That happened. That didn't happen. You've misrepresented me. Okay? It's, not, it's not in the dim and distant past. What we have in Luke's Gospel is a carefully researched, carefully put together, reliable account of what happened in the life and death and after the death of Jesus. And it's one of those events that we're going to look at uh, just for a few minutes. Um, we're going to see what happens after Jesus' death. We're going to look at a, kind of a couple of little snapshots of it. Christians believe, this is why we're going after the death, that Christians believe, as you've hopefully picked up this morning, that after being executed by the Roman authorities, Jesus was resurrected. In other words, Jesus came back to life, but not in a resuscitation kind of way, that they got the paddles out and boom, 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 and suddenly he's back in business. But in a sense, he died, beaten death, and then went on to live forever. Now, I know what you're obviously thinking. That's impossible. Yes, it is. It's clearly impossible. And that's why we're going to dig into these accounts a little bit more carefully. The big surprise to you may be, when we see these accounts, Jesus' original disciples, the guys that are hung with him for the last three years, the guys that were going to go on to promote this idea that Jesus had risen from the dead, when they first heard about it, they were deeply, deeply sceptical. Jesus' original disciples had a very hard time accepting it. And that may fit nicely with where you're at. If you're visiting here, if you're not used to being in church, you may be sitting there thinking, actually, I'm rather sceptical of all this. I have a hard time believing this. Well, you've come to the right place. That's exactly the place that these guys were in, as we're going to see from these accounts. 
To give you the backstory, Jesus was executed on a Friday. Uh, he was taken down from the cross, certified dead, placed in a tomb that was a kind of a cave cut in a rock, and then a huge stone was, as according to the custom, was, was rolled across it to seal it off. Uh, and then a guard was placed on it to make sure there was no tampering with the tomb. Saturday, nobody could do anything. It was a very strict Jewish Sabbath. Um, still exists in Israel today, as I discovered when I tried to buy a cheeseburger meal at McDonald's in Israel on the Sabbath. That was a disaster. So I have a cheeseburger meal. We don't do cheese. What? We don't do cheese? All right. Why not? He said, it's kosher. They can't mix cheese and meat. All right, that's, that's fair enough. I said, all right, just give me a burger and fries. Uh, we don't do fries. I said, well, this is McDonald's. You don't do cheeseburgers. You don't do fries. What's going on? The reasoning, it's the Sabbath. I said, all right. He said, you can have a potato if you like. Brilliant. That's just what I want to eat. So I ended up with the world's most disgusting burger uh, in a non-legally suitable sense. The Sabbath, everybody rested. Everybody rested on the Sabbath. Nobody went out. On the Sunday morning, we find some women going to the tomb to pay their last respects to Jesus' body. They come back and report to Jesus' disciples, the kind of the, the 11 remaining of Jesus' kind of guys. They come back and report an outlandish story. We got there. The stone had been moved away from the entrance to the tomb. <coughs> Excuse me. The tomb was empty. The body was gone. We found the grave clothes that he was wrapped up in just piled up there. There were two angels that told us, he's not here. He's risen from the dead. They rush back and tell the disciples who just don't believe them. And as we see in this account here, it's not a warm reaction. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Speaking of the apostles, the disciples, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense, which is exactly how they'd seem to you or I, I would imagine. If someone comes back from a trip to the shops, I've seen someone raised from the dead. Of course you have. Sit down, have a stiff drink. Peter, however, one of Jesus' right hand guys, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Notice, these are not primitive, simple-minded fools who swallow any nonsense that's thrown at them. The women came back and the disciples' reaction was, yeah, great story, but that's impossible. Dead is dead. That clearly can't have happened. Peter went to have a little look and he came back wondering what had happened. He didn't go, oh, the tomb is empty. It must be what those women are saying. Peter came back wondering, what's happened? Whatever happened, it clearly wasn't what those ladies have told me about. Because that doesn't happen. That's impossible. Peter was thinking there must be some logical explanation for this. But what is it? Interesting little note of authenticity for this account of Luke's Gospel. Luke records women as being the first people to reach the tomb. If you like, they're witness A, the first lot of witnesses. If Luke was writing a fraudulent document to trick everyone into thinking that Jesus has risen from the dead, he would be an idiot to have women as the first people to find the tomb. Because in the culture that he was writing to, not our culture, in the culture he was writing to, women were not considered valid witnesses in court. Bizarre though it seems to us. Now this doesn't reflect anything on Luke's opinion. It's just that if he's going to make something up, he's not going to have women being the first ones there. Because everyone will go, oh well that's just a made up story, isn't it? It's like you wanting to promote a particular theory that you've cooked up and you, your opening statement to convince everyone is, this is true, I know it because I read it on the internet. Immediately, everybody goes, it's a pack of lies. That would be the cultural equivalent of starting off saying, do you know what, some women went to the tomb and he wasn't there. Everyone would just go, Pfft. 
So the only reason he would record this if they really were the first people that get to the tomb. If you're going to make it up, at least make up something plausible. The other thing that's interesting is he names them, doesn't he? These aren't faceless extras. These are people that he actually records. Mary James's mum, Joanna, a lady called Mary Magdalene, and some others. They're not just kind of bit players that come on. These are real people, some of whom would still be alive at the, at the time that this document was circulating. He puts it in specifically to say, not just some random faceless people, but real people who you can dig out and speak to if you want, uh, will help you. The disciples, of course, can't believe it. It's impossible. There's another little incident of uh, the resurrected Jesus appearing from the disciples. We're going to move through that one to see what happens when these guys get back and they say again to the uh, group of disciples, we've seen this Jesus resurrected from the dead. And we're going to see again that they just can't accept it. They just have a really hard time accepting it. Uh, The next kind of passage we're going to look at, just a few verses further on in Luke's Gospel, is this. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? That would be the question I would ask, having risen from the dead. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Notice what's happening. They're startled. They're frightened. What's going on? They're looking for another explanation. Maybe he's a ghost of some sort. There's probably one disciple looking around trying to spot the mirrors. And he's passing a hoop over him in case there are some strings or bizarre puppetry going on. What has this done? Is there a projector? Jesus answers them probably the most obvious question in the world. Why are you doubting? which they reply, because you're dead? Think it through. What a stupid question they're thinking. You're dead and you're standing here. Why are you doubting? Of course we're doubting. Guys, what would you do if someone that you had seen killed three days later appeared to you alive? You would think this can't be. Something. What? I don't get it. Imagine if they said, why are you doubting? Why do you think? Dead is dead. This is not possible. In the 21st century, we have a very rationalistic, scientifically informed worldview, and that's very often extremely useful. But sometimes it, it kind of tips over a little bit and squeezes out and leaves no room for God, leaves no room for the miraculous, leaves no room for... How could he rise from the dead? How could that be possible? And it, it's hard for us to understand. This is telling us it was hard for them to understand. They are not ultra-gullible, unthinking simpletons. This can't be the case. They're no more stupid than you are. They're no more gullible than you are. They were no more susceptible to, oh, I've got a vague bit of indigestion and I I saw the back of someone walking down the street, let's rush out and believe Jesus is alive. They can't come to terms with it, even with the real physical resurrected Jesus standing in front of them. Jesus tries to convince them, try to give them some evidence. Look, touch me. I'm not a ghost. Stop looking for projectors and mirrors. I'm physically here touch me. Look, here are my hands. Check out, there are holes in them where I was nailed up. It's not a clever impersonation. It's really me. As a desperate last-ditch attempt, perhaps, he says, look, give me something to eat. Takes a piece of fish and eats it. You know, the guy with the mirrors is waiting for it to drop to the floor. What, how is it going to pass through him? 
He's looking for a bag suspended behind a cardboard cutout. How does that work? He's eating a... What? You can't be a ghost. Ghosts don't eat fish. I don't, I don't think they eat fish. They stand around open-mouthed. You see what's happening? They cannot get their heads around it. They're not a bunch of yokels who just, oh, it must have risen from the dead. They're resisting this idea as strongly as they can. Even with Jesus in front of their eyes, it doesn't fit their worldview. You may be in that position. It may be that it just doesn't fit your worldview. You may be thinking, it's a nice jolly bit of singing, but this, this, it cannot be true. This is nonsense. Dead is dead. It's impossible. People don't rise from the dead. You are in just the same position as these guys were in. The weird thing we find about these disciples is not that they rush to embrace this great news he's resurrected from the dead, but they are resisting it as strongly as they can. This can't be true. And yet what we find is over time, these guys reluctantly are compelled to accept that just perhaps Jesus really has risen from the dead. On the face of the evidence, not despite the evidence, not deliberately ignoring the evidence, but because of the evidence in front of them, these guys have to change their worldview. These guys have to say, well, perhaps this really did happen. I want you to understand, these people were regular, intelligent, intellectually honest people, just like you. But they came to believe because of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Not despite it. Someone once said that faith is believing what you know to be untrue. The Radio 4 angry scientists said that spirituality is faith over evidence. Here, it's the evidence that compels them to believe. The same is true now. Genuine, real Christianity doesn't say to you, oh, go on, just believe. Real, genuine Christianity says there is evidence. There is historical evidence. There is documentary evidence. There is experiential evidence in people's lives that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if you're going to come to faith, come to faith in Jesus on the back of the evidence, because of the evidence, not despite it. The Alpha course that Chris was just uh, telling you about briefly uh, a moment ago, is uh, we've got an Alpha course coming up. It is a brilliant opportunity to dig into some of the evidence for Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Alpha, if you don't know anything about it, is a, it's a national, it's an international course run by all kinds of Christians. It's an eight-week course that basically each evening consists of a chance to sit down, have a nice meal with some people, make some new friends. There's a talk presenting some of the evidence for Jesus and who he was, and then a chance to discuss it and to knock it around and to ask your questions, to challenge it, to rattle it, to shake it, to question it, to say, does this stand up? Does this convince me? We've got Alpha coming up in a few weeks' time. If you want a little taster of it, then come to our Alpha Meal, which is uh, promoted on these posters at the back. It's on Sunday the 1st of May, next Sunday in the evening at 7 o'clock at Pretzo Restaurant up the top of the town. It's a free meal. It's on us. It's a chance for you to come along and think, do I want to find out a little bit more about this? Do I want to check it out? As a sneak preview on Alpha, we look at stuff like the empty tomb. Are there other explanations? What happened to the body of Jesus? We look at questions such as, how do we explain these people thinking they saw Jesus after he was executed? How do we explain people like his own mother and his brothers 
becoming convinced that he rose from the dead and was the son of God. We look at the reliability of the Bible's accounts and the fact that many of the people who wrote these accounts were so convinced by them that they died by what they wrote. We look at the fact that people have got changed lives, including a whole bunch of people in the church here whose lives have been changed by Jesus. Alpha is an opportunity for you to investigate, for you to dig a little bit deeper. If you think it's kind of something that might be interesting to you, or even you've got someone you know who would be interested in coming on it, then you can book in through Buzz in the church office or speaking to me to the meal next Sunday and find out about it. But I want to find that finish with one more question. I want to ask this last question. Does it really matter? What was the point? What's the point of a death and resurrection? Was it like a, a, some sort of massive trick, a sort of... You know, an early version of Israel's Got Talent. It's the kind of, uh, you know, we can't saw a lady in half, but we're going to send a man to the grave and he's going to come back three days later. Was it a stunt? Was it a publicity thing? The last thing in Luke's Gospel tells us uh, what happens. This is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, speaking to them. They're still kind of not quite taking it in, but Jesus says, look, this is what was written. He's he's, he's talking about the predictions in the Old Testament, over 300 uh, prophecies and predictions about Jesus' birth, life, and death. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You guys are witnesses of these things. The whole point of Jesus' resurrection from the dead was to open up a way of forgiveness between us and God. Jesus' death and his resurrection deals with all the things that you and I have done wrong. It deals with the guilt that we've accumulated before him. Because of our sins. He's, it's like, it's like the, he's burying it in the grave. We take the guilt, we take the wrong things we've done, bury them in the grave. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is uh, it's like a vindication, it's like a triumph. It's like two boxers are slugging it out for 15 rounds. One of the comedy moments, they both swing, they both make contact, they both fall on the deck. The referee gets there, he's going to start counting. What's going to happen? Is it just going to be a kind of a null contest? Is it just going to be a draw? Then one of the boxers gets up and he stands on his feet. And the count goes, nine, ten. The other guy's down, the other guy's out, the other guy's lost. But the guy standing on his feet, he's won. He's beaten it. That's what Jesus' resurrection is like. He stands up, raised his gloves, hands. He's done it. He's won. Guilt is done. Sin is paid for. All the wrong that we have done has been beaten and left on the deck. Count it out. You see, a Christian is not someone who's good enough. A Christian is not someone who's joined a religion. A Christian is not someone who's cleaned their life up a little bit. A Christian is not someone who's become religious or got a new philosophy on life. Plain and simple, a Christian is someone who has received God's forgiveness and is living a new life because of it. The church is not the kind of the, the spiritual moral equivalent of the teetotalers association. Oh, I've never touched a drop of alcohol. It's not the equivalent of the teetotalers spiritually. I've never done any sinning. I've never done anything wrong. And we look down at our nose judgmentally at those who have. Ooh, those awful people. The church is the moral, spiritual equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're here because we've got a sin problem. And through Jesus' help, we think we're beating it at the moment. So actually, if you think, I've done things I'm not proud of, you fit right in. But there's forgiveness. Jesus says that this forgiveness comes through repentance which just means turning around. Like our sin is the equivalent of an angry, stroppy teenager storming out the house, flicking the finger at dad. Repentance is when we come to our senses and realise, I'm doing the wrong thing, this isn't working, this isn't making sense. Repentance is when we change our minds 
and we change our lives and we turn around and we come back to God. And Jesus' death and his resurrection enables us to reconnect with God, to know him, which is what we were built for. It's what you live for. It's what you were designed for. It's why nothing else kind of makes sense. It's why you have questions. Why am I here? What's the point? Why do I kind of feel empty sometimes, even though I've got loads of nice stuff? It's because you were born to know God and to relate to him. And whoever's successful at work and at family and on video games, you are. Whoever nice a car you've got, there's something that doesn't quite fit because you were born to know God. Jesus died so that you can find the reason for your existence. Without this connection to God, you're a bit like an unplugged toaster. You're just not connected to the mains. You're, you're cold and empty and a little bit crummy. But Jesus died so that you can connect with God. That was the point. It wasn't a stunt. It wasn't a trick. It was actually to find a way where you can come home to God. And is it just a story? Is it something to tell kids? No, no, it's true. And I believe, because I think there's strong evidence for it, in the documents we read, in the historical accounts, and in the change that Jesus has done in my life, and some of these guys here. So I just want to leave you with a thought. Maybe this Easter, it is worth just thinking again about Jesus. Maybe it's worth just checking out the evidence again. You can do it by coming on Alpha, coming to our Alpha meal. You can do it by coming on Sundays again, and finding out a bit more. You can even do it by picking up a Bible and reading some of these accounts for yourself. I think that's all I'm going to say. Thanks very much for listening. We are going to sing again now, so can we have the band kind of scooting up? And I would just say, if you're interested in Alpha, finding out more about it, if there's some stuff you want to talk about from this morning, please feel free to grab me at the end or speak to one of the guys from the church, and we can help you with that. But we're just going to sing a little bit more uh, and celebrate the real, historical, actual resurrection from the dead. So if I ask you to stand, we're going to roll.